0: Uh, many exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped, escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. Before we begin our study this morning, let's bow our heads together and go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we are so thankful that you have revealed yourself to us. You have revealed yourself to us through the written word and through the living word. Through your written word, we have in our hands faithful translations of the original that you use in our lives with great power to Inform us, to teach us, to train us, to challenge us, to correct us. And Father, we are so thankful that we have this great privilege, for there are so many in the world who may only have part of the New Testament, if that. And there are others who just are not allowed to have uh, their own possession of your word. And throughout history, there are many who, for one reason or another, did not have their own copies of Scripture, but we have so much. Not only do we have your Word before us on a printed, published Bible, but we have it available electronically. We have access to so much teaching and so much study materials online that we have been given much, and those who are given much, much is required. And yet, Father, we also live in an age when your word is rejected. And that is difficult for us to deal with, living in a culture that is increasingly hostile to you. So, Father, as we continue our study in Ephesians, focusing upon what you have provided for us, the church, the body of Christ, and that we are members of the body of Christ, members of one another, that we have a We have a code of conduct, just like any family ought to have. And that as we study this, we will certainly come under uh, conviction, correction from your word, but we pray that we might recognize that this is supposed to be the guiding, uh, these are the guiding rules for our life as members of your royal family, the body of Christ. And we pray that we might be positively responsive to that challenge. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So we come together now that we're going back into our study of Ephesians, having taken the time to uh, depart for first a topical study that came right out of the text. And we spent about four Sundays just studying what the scriptures taught about our responsibilities in the body of Christ as members of one another because of that foundation that we'll be reminded of again in Ephesians 4.25. And then the last three Sundays, we took time to look at and examine uh, some basic promises from the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, focusing on uh, how we could identify the Messiah, the promised seed of the woman who would defeat the seed of the serpent would go to the cross eventually and die as our substitute on the cross. And then how that was remarkably fulfilled looking at those eight prophecies and their fulfillment last Sunday. So now we're going to go back to Ephesians and continue our study in what is a very uh, practical, very practical section because it is filled with uh, various commands as to how we are to think and how we are to live. And it's amazing what we see when we get into this passage. But in this initial section, when we look at the next couple of verses in Ephesians 4, 26 and 27, we are looking at one of the major sins that we all all too often succumb to, which is at the root of a matrix of other emotional sins. And when a people have have no mechanisms, no spiritual skills, or no uh, basic mental tools to control these root emotional sins, then that ignites a chain reaction of other emotional sins, which then explode into various sins of the tongue, such as gossip and maligning and insulting and many other sins, and also overt sins, sins that eventually can deeply and profoundly damage a believer's spiritual life and personal relationships It impacts marriages and families. Speaking of families, that is the environment that God established for the training of children. The training of children so that they can become effective, uh, successful adults. And it is in the family that that a child is to learn about personal responsibility, consequences for failure, learning right and wrong, learning self-discipline and self-control, selflessness and humility, and many other virtues. Now, there are unbelievers that are able to approximate some of the biblical virtues, but the biblical virtues that are listed in Galatians chapter 5, verses 20 to 22, the fruit of the Spirit, are just that. They are produced by God the Holy Spirit, They are not something that you and I can just gin up because it's a nice moral code and therefore I want to abide that. It goes beyond basic morality, which is good, but it isn't spirituality. Spirituality means that these virtues, love, as we've studied recently, love, as the Bible speaks about it, the love that Jesus said is to mark a disciple, is not the kind of love that an unsaved person can emulate because it's a fruit of the Holy Spirit. It is something that is produced in us only as a result of our spiritual life and our spiritual growth. But even unbelievers can approximate some of these things, and God gave divine institutions, and we've gone through the six that I teach several times, but we'll just focus on the first three God gave divine institutions sort of built-in social laws into the fabric of his creation and the makeup of every human being. When these are followed, it doesn't matter whether you're a believer or unbeliever, whether you hold to some other uh, religious beliefs or not, by following these divine institutions, you can have a measure of stability and prosperity in your life because God gave them to the human race as a whole for that very purpose, to provide for stability, for protection, for perpetuation of the human race. The first three are personal or individual responsibility. Every individual is responsible to God. The second one is marriage, and the third is family. Those three are given before there is uh, much activity on the part of Adam and Eve, at the very beginning, before there was any sin, and they were designed for the purpose of in that if they followed those, it would enable them to prosper and carry out God's mission for them, uh, which was to rule in his place over his uh, his creation and God established marriage and the family as the training ground as the school for teaching these fundamental concepts to the children so that it would be passed on to the next generation. It is in the home that a child learns to respect authority. It is when we learn to respect authority that we learn humility as a counter to, as sinners now, to as a counter to our arrogance, our self-orientation, our self-absorption, our selfishness. And if that is not taught and the training isn't there within the context of the home, a marriage, and family, then there will be a collapse of the family, collapse of marriage, and there will be nothing uh, but problems because then arrogance rules. When our Lord Jesus Christ took on humanity, and that act was described by the Apostle Paul in Philippians 2, It says that he humbled himself in obedience to the point of death. See, that's what humility is. It's obedience to the authority of God first and foremost and obedience to other legitimate authorities secondary. And when children are not taught that in the home, then they grow up wild and rebellious. And the result of that is they have no control mechanisms for their own emotions and their emotional uh, sins. So when the family breaks down, the place where we are to learn these things, then there are no tools for unbelievers to uh, learn in order to uh, avoid the extremes of a self-centered sin nature. They need to grow up where they learn good manners, they learn consideration for others, and they in the context of a family, they learn how to deal with other people who may disagree with them, uh, who may do things in ways that keeps them from having what they want, and they have to mature. And in our culture, we have seen the increase of anger and rage as a result of the breakdown of the family, of the breakdown of divine institutions. And even such a sagacious periodical as Time magazine has observed on on an article related to anger that no society has ever survived after its family life has deteriorated. And that from a periodical who, which has been used in many ways to promote the very collapse of marriage and family in our country. How ironic. Even a blind hog finds an acorn every now and then. So even though they ultimately have no answers uh, because of the destruction of these divine institutions, Uh, they've rejected biblical truth, they've rejected God as even a reality. And so without any foundation, they really have no hope. They really have no answers. In fact, one report had a finding that, that doctors, that when their patients come to them and express the fact that they're having difficulty with anger, they admit that they have few options to help their patients. The unbelieving world has no answer to the anger and rage problem because they have cut themselves off from the only solution. If you do a search on the problem of anger in America, you will find a host of articles that recognize the problem. You will also find one that has a recent survey, and some of the findings of that survey are that almost a third of the people polled, 32%, say they have a close friend or family member who has trouble controlling their anger. Second, more than 1 in 10, 12%, say that they have trouble controlling their own anger. Just drive through the parking lot at HEB anytime. And you'll see it in yourself or in others or both. More than 1 in 4, 28%, say they worry about how angry they sometimes feel. Fourth, only one in five people, 20%, say that they have ended a relationship or friendship with someone because of how they behaved when they were angry. Fifth, 64% either strongly agree or agree that people in general are getting angrier. Why are people getting angrier? Because they're not getting their way. Basically, that's why you get angry is because you don't get what you want. That's that's it. You, there's variations and everything we'll talk about, but you don't get what you want. And when you live in a more self, more and more self-centered environment where everybody is demanding that they get what they want, and other people are demanding that they get what they want, you, you're going to have real trouble. And the problem is erupting around us in all, all kinds of different rage. Um, six fewer than one in seven of these people who say they have trouble controlling their anger, have sought help for their anger problem. And 58% of people wouldn't know where to seek help if they needed help with an anger problem. So we, got it, we have an anger problem, but it affects us. We're products of our own culture. We're products of a postmodern culture that has fed to us the same garbage that we need to have what we want in order to be happy. Now, as believers, we've been able to deal with that to one degree or another, depending on how long you've been a believer in applying the word. But, but we all get affected in all kinds of ways by the worldview of our uh, of the culture around us, and anger is one of the manifestations of that, and it is a manifestation culturally as the of the out of control selfishness that comes as a result of the rejection of moral absolutes. So our passage today is perhaps the most significant passage for understanding some things about anger. That is noted in numerous articles and commentaries that I read, is that this is one of the most significant passages, and it emphasizes certain things about anger and sin and the devil. So I have entitled the message Anger, Sin and the Devil. And they go together in these two verses, Ephesians 4, 26 and 27. So as we get into this next section, it actually began with the verse, verse 25, with which we'll begin in just a minute. But it goes from 425 down through 521 and then Paul gives a lengthy list of the things that we as believers must do ought to do because we are members of the family of God we are not supposed to do them in order to get saved we're not supposed to do them in order to maintain our salvation we're not supposed to do them to do them if for any other reason is that this is the way God has determined that those who are in his royal family should behave. And in any household, as I said earlier, a household, a family is designed to teach the children how to deal with their selfishness. And there is a code of conduct in any good family. The parents, hopefully the dad, he's ultimately the one who should really enforce this should emphasize the fact that in this family and those who are called by the name of this family there are things that we do and things that we don't do and we don't do what you just did and as a result of that there are going to be consequences and there are things that we do do there are standards by which our family lives and our role as parents is to teach and train you because by following these guidelines and these principles related to our family then you will be able to have a successful life, no matter what comes, as an adult. That's the role of the parent, is to train the children so that once they reach 18, 19, or 20, they have the maturity and the life skills and, in a Christian family, the spiritual skills to be able to negotiate the issues and challenges and difficulties of life. And that's the way it is in the royal family of God. There are standards. They are not standards for salvation. They are standards for how we are to live, to emulate the fact that we are in God's family. Later in this passage, Paul says we are to be imitators of God. That doesn't mean we're going to be perfect. That doesn't mean we're not going to fail. That doesn't mean that... When you have been a believer for 60 years, that you look at some areas of your life and say, I've been struggling with this since I was 10 years old or 8 years old. I'm tired of confessing this, but God always forgives me. But we've grown, even though it may look to us sometimes that, well, that growth may be measured in millimeters. When we get into this section, we will find that from 425 down through 521... Paul gives a list of commands, 27 imperatives in those verses. And then when we get to the next section from 5.22 down through 6.9, there are eight more imperatives. And that doesn't really count the fact that there are some additional, uh, what what are called by grammarians, uh, imperatival participles. So there's a lot of imperatives here, and these imperatives describe the code of conduct for those who are the new man. Remember what we see when we were studying in Ephesians 4, uh, 20 to 20, uh, 23, that we have already put off the old man, and we have put on the new man. And when putting on the new man is being in Christ, that only in this dispensation are believers in Christ. We're called the body of Christ, the bride of Christ. These are high privileges, and we've been given high privileges as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is what is referred to in Ephesians 4.25, which is rarely translated correctly. Usually it says something about you are to put off lying, L-Y-I-N-G. With the ing, it's a gerund in English or a participle, but it's not that in the Greek. And the verb tense is a past tense. You have already put off the lie. When did that happen? When you trusted Christ as Savior. You put off the, the lie. The lie is that which goes with the old man who you were in Adam, but now legally you are in Christ. And you have a new identity, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that you are a new creature in Christ. Old things are passed away. All things are new. We are a new uh, in, new individual because of regeneration, and we are the, have put on the new man. And so in this verse, we studied that what Paul is saying is because you have already put off the lie, and, you should, and there's an article with the noun there in the Greek. There's no verb. There's no verbal. It it is the lie. We have put off the lie. And then we are commanded, let each one of you speak the truth. And the word truth doesn't have an article. But in Greek, the lack of an article is emphasizing the qualitative nature of the noun. And so it's not an indefinite noun, a truth. It is truth, capital T-R-U-T-H, God's truth. Truth. And as we've seen in previous sections of uh, chapter 4, this the truth always refers to Scripture. So we are to be talking with one another, our neighbors within the body of Christ, in terms of what God has revealed to us. And that doesn't mean you're always talking about spiritual things. But whatever we talk about is to be within this context and framework of biblical truth not buying into the lies of the culture, the lies of Satan, or any other deceptive uh, worldviews. Now, at the end of that verse, it says that the reason we do this is that we are members of one another in the body of Christ. So this context of what is coming in terms of these commands, these imperatives, for our behavior, it is it is because we are in this family. There's this code of conduct, and we are members of one another, so we're to encourage one another, both by our example as well as by uh, things, that, things that we say. Now, when we see this, for example, back early, just a few verses earlier in the chapter, Paul said, but speaking the truth in love. Now, that's not telling people... Uh, the truth as opposed to lying that is speaking the truth the truth is in relation to the word of god that's the standard for what our communication should be but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head christ once you trust in christ as savior you're saved you don't have to worry about losing that you're not going to do something that god forgot to put on Jesus at the cross where you do something. I forgot that. God's omniscient. He didn't miss anything. Jesus paid for every single sin. You're not going to surprise God because he's omniscient. You're not going to do something tomorrow and God's going to go, I can't believe he did that. Now you may say, oh my gosh, I can't believe I did that. But God's not surprised. It was paid for at the cross. So sin is not the issue for the believer. The issue is walking by the Spirit, being in fellowship, confessing sin when we sin, and moving forward. So we are to grow up in Christ, Christ-like, and it is from whom? From Christ that the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint, joint referred to, there joints all through our body. The joints are that which supplies something, and they are they minister to one another. So that's what that's talking about, and we've covered that in detail. Now, when we get into this passage, there's a couple of things that we need to observe just broadly. It's very important to look at this uh, as as a whole, and I'm not sure I've got a complete grasp on everything that goes on in here because it's really a long section as many times as I've read over it and worked my way through this. There are a lot of things that are going on here, and I don't think it's a mistake that after Paul goes through the a lot of individual commands, he comes to the family, and he describes the roles of husbands and wives and children and servants in the home, slaves in the home, and how they are to live and how they are to operate, because that ultimately is it. And I don't think it's uh, it's a surprise that when you get to the end of this section in six nine, the next topic he covers toward the end of the book is spiritual warfare. Because to see this operate in our life, to grow, grow spiritually, and to focus on biblical priorities, puts each of us in the crosshairs uh, of Satan's scope. He doesn't want us to succeed. That's why we get this warning in verse 27, not to give an opportunity uh, to the devil. So let's just sort of go over this a little bit quickly. I'll refer back to this, but I think it's important that we sort of see how this is organized. So in this section, as I said, there's 27 imperatives and imperatival participles. And so that tells us that, that these are commands from God. And it's not legalism. Legalism is, if I obey them, then God's going to give me brownie points. That's not what's going on here. You don't have to do these things to grow. Growing is walking by the Spirit. If we're in right relationship with the Lord, studying the Word, this is telling us how we are to live. But when we're out of fellowship, the sin nature's in control, and all kinds of things are going to happen. So... These imperatives tell us that there's a code of conduct for us. There's also grace when, and forgiveness when we fail. So the opening verse here, verse uh, 25, uh, focuses on the fact that we are to, we have a new identity in Christ and that positionally we've put off the old man and we put on the new man, and now we are to speak truth with other believers because we're members of one another that is introduces this section so it's sort of a topical sentence of how we do this and what this is characterized by and what it's not what it should not be characterized by in the body of christ there's an interdependence and a mutual responsibility which we covered in the previous section the one another responsibilities within our new family the family of the body of christ can only function on genuine humility. If we ang- if we give in to anger, nurture anger, we're not being humble. So we can't fulfill the responsibilities to one another because we've made it all about us instead of all about the body of Christ. So we have to keep certain things in mind when we see these things because you read through these, you go, you know, I can't do this. Of course you can't do this. This is produced by the Holy Spirit. It's not produced by, by by us. So we have to keep certain things in mind. First of all, A, we all have sin natures. I know you can look around the congregation and you see somebody you've known for years, you say, you know, I just don't think she really has a sin nature. But yes, we do. Everybody has a sin nature. And sin natures are not diminished or removed when we're saved. Now, I think this is one of the flaws in the Lordship salvation thing. They believe that what happens when you're regenerated is that that minimizes some aspects of your sin nature. And therefore, if you see that you still commit some sin, you are not really saved. But that's not biblical. That, that, that leads to legalism. At salvation, we're saved from the penalty of sin. That is phase one in what we're saved from. We're saved from the penalty of sin, but during the Christian life, phase two, from the second after we're born again, we have to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ so we can learn how to be delivered or saved from the uh, power of sin in our life. That's the role, that's the purpose of the spiritual life. We have to grow spiritually so we can realize what it means to be saved from the power of sin. This is Romans 6, 11, where Paul says, so you too consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. We have to consider means to reckon it, to, to think about it, that, that, that when you go out and you're doing certain things, you have to say, no, no, I am Separated from the power of sin now and I have to live like it. Now, that doesn't come easily. That takes a lot of time. After 10 years, you're going to say, well, you know, I can see some growth. And we have to recognize that it's not something that's a... There's no magic bullet. It's the process of growth. It's the process of... Growth. Now, some of you look like you may have seen a gym once or twice and worked out a few times. Others of you look like you, you did everything you could to run away from a gym most of your life. But if you are going to get in shape and you have to do certain things, and to do that, you, you go to the gym and you work out for six weeks and you're consistent and you think, I just don't see any difference, and you get frustrated and, and everything. But you keep it up for a couple of years, you say, wow, that's really made a difference. I really change. But it's something you have to do day in and day out because the changes are incremental. They don't all just happen in one time. We can't just drive through the window at Burger King and order a, you know, a big spiritual growth sandwich, and we've made it. There's, there's, there's no fast food in the spiritual life. Second thing we have to, this is point B, we only get to that point of reckoning ourselves dead to sin as we walk by the Spirit. And some people say, you know, if I need to confess my sin every time I sin, I'm just going to be confessing it all, all day long. I'll never get anything done. Well, yeah, that's what it, that's what it's like to be a baby. Just keep watching your grandbabies or your babies and watch how they grow. And all of a sudden, I'll see kids around here that I haven't seen maybe in in a few months and i'm just amazed at how they grow but other kids you see them every day and you don't you don't see that growth well that the spiritual life has a lot of analogies to that see and i've already mentioned this these commands are not legalistic external st- standards because they address the spiritual life of the inner man first you notice these are not external things for the most part they have to do with what goes on between your ears that's what spiritual warfare is I've got a book called What the Bible Teaches About Spiritual Warfare that Tommy Eisen and I wrote 32 years ago. And we wrote that in response to the popularity of the heresy about spiritual warfare that comes across all the uh, television evangelists and the charismatics and everything that it has to do with some sort of external battle with the devil and stomping on the devil and all this other kind of nonsense that has nothing to do with the Bible. Spiritual life has to do with how you think. And how, and as a result of a change of thinking, then you get a change of how you talk, your content of your talk, and how you live. But it starts with a change that takes place in how you think. That's why Romans twelve two says that we are not to be conformed to the world, but transformed by the renewing of our mind. Not the renewing of our emotions, the renewing of our thinking. So it starts on the inside. D... In each of our lives, we grow in different ways. Each of us are different people. We have different sin natures. We have different problems. We have different circumstances. And everybody grow, grows in a different way. You may be have dealt very easily with some issue in your life, which is a very difficult thing for somebody else across the congregation to deal with in their life. And if you get arrogant... And judgmental, you're going to say, well, you know, he may not be a believer because, you know, it was easy for me to dump that. But, but look at them. They're still struggling with that. But everybody's different. So uh, we have different trends in our sin natures. We have different personalities and other problems. So it's a struggle. That's why it's called spiritual warfare. E, we dare not forget how deeply rooted our habits are. Okay, And I use that word intentionally. They're habits. They're not necessary things, but our sin nature has made those our proclivities, and by continuing to do it a certain way, we've made it our regular habit pattern. Change doesn't come overnight, but what we need is a passion to internalize the Word of God. If you don't have that passion to internalize the Word of God, then then you're not to the point where you're ready to grow yet. You're still playing games with God and, and giving in to your sin nature. And that can be acceptable if you're a baby believer because that's characteristics of a baby. But sooner or later, daddy's going to give a little discipline and you're going to have to grow out of it. And that's what happens in the spiritual life. We grow. We have to have a passion for internalizing the Word of God, walking by the Spirit, And then it will happen gradually, slowly, and that's part of the battle. Six, which is point F, this passage provides us with those standards we are to live up to. They're not evidences of our spiritual growth, our spiritual status, whether we're saved or not, uh, because in some ways these virtues and these behaviors can be imitated to a small degree by unbelievers. Only God really can see what he has done in our life. The Holy Spirit produces this. And we pray that when we get to be a little older or a lot older, that we'll be able to look back and we'll be able to see some evidence of of, of some growth. Well, that was part of my first point. Second point, Ephesians 4.25 provides the general framework of our role as members of the body of Christ Which relates this next section to what was taught earlier in four one through twenty four, so Paul isn't jumping to some totally different topic. He is developing the topic, and so we we need to look at some things that we've seen. Back at the beginning of the chapter, we are to walk worthy of that new that high position, that calling that we are a new person in Christ, with which we were called. And we are to be characterized by humility and gentleness. That's in verse 2. We are to be striving to maintain the unity in the body of Christ. That isn't going to happen if we are constantly following the self-centered arrogance of our sin natures. We find out as we go through the passage that God gave gifted leaders... Uh, initially apostles and prophets, and for the whole church age, evangelists and pastor teachers to equip the saints to do the work of ministry. That comes from the teaching of God's Word. It is the Word of God plus the Spirit of God that matures the child of God. There's no other formula. So we are to grow beyond spiritual childhood That is, and that's what 414 is all about, that we should no longer be children, tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine. So your goal may be to do any number of things in life. If you're a believer, God's goal is to make you like Jesus Christ, and if your goal is this way and God's goal is that way, there are going to be some problems, because God's going to be working to pull you over to His path and not your path. We're to grow spiritually in the body of Christ. This is in uh, chapter, chapter 4, verse 16, uh, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Next, fifth, we are, no longer, we are to no longer think, talk, and live as the unbelieving Gentiles around us. That's verse 17. This I say, therefore, in testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind. You change teams. You know, yesterday we saw some football games. And at the end, we saw some football players that played in those games that are going to be in the draft for the NFL. They're going to be changing teams. We're familiar with that. We just saw the Astros win the World Series, and... There have been several players that have already signed with a new team because Astros just now they can com, their contract was up, they can command a much larger salary, and the Astros just can't pay enormous salaries for everybody. And this happens with every team in their championship. So they're gonna put on a new jersey. Next year they're gonna play against their former teammates. And they have when they go to to another team, they're gonna be different protocols for those who are on that team and different standards of behavior. And we change teams. The instant you trusted Christ, you took off your Gentile unbeliever jersey and you put on a church-age believer jersey, the body of Christ. And now you have a new set of guidelines and, and standards. So we aren't to act like we did when we were on the other team. So there's a different code of conduct for the believer in Christ. And now our life is based on truth. Yes, postmodern children, there is a capital T truth that is true for everybody in whatever culture, in whatever century you live, that is universal and absolute. And that is what should control our thinking, our conversations, and our lives. So that gets us into the context. Now let's see what's coming up. I'll go through this kind of fast. You can break these passages down. And you, we have a, these commands in each area down through five one, which I think is the conclusion to this. Because in verse 2, 5.2, it says, And walk in love. So as soon as you see that walk command, he's shifting gears a little bit. So what you have in these are two commands. One's a positive, one's a negative. Sometimes he gives the positive first and then the negative, and sometimes he gives the negative and then the positive. And you understand what he's talking about by examining the contrast. So we're to be angry. That's the positive thing. It's a passive verb we're going to see. And that means that, that you get, you're you driving down the freeway and somebody cuts you off, and it, it's a visceral response of anger. It's passive voice. That means it's acted upon. It's, it's, it, it just it seems like it just happens in and of itself. That shows that it's not anger is not a sin, because he goes on to say and do not sin. So there, uh, you can be angry. You can have certain emotions, but if you don't act on them, you don't nurture them. You don't nurse them. Then it's not a sin. And you have to deal with it and not let it go, not let it go on. So the first you have, be angry, don't sin, don't let the sun go down on your wrath, which means you have to deal with it quickly and not go to sleep angry. And see, because it gives the devil an opportunity. You're out of fellowship, you're nurturing it now as a sin, and that gives the devil an opportunity. The first, verse 28 says, let the stealer steal no more, but instead the positive command, let him labor. The negative is let no corrupt, in verse 29, let no corrupt word come out of your mouth. Now, what we're going to see is we have to understand corrupt word and its contrast is with that which is necessary for edification. That goes back to the truth concept that we've learned. A corrupt word is that which is not consistent with the divine viewpoint truth that is to characterize our conversation. And... uh Then in verses 30 to 31, negative command, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. The positive is to put away all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil, speaking with all malice. Verse 32 has a positive command to be kind to one another by graciously forgiving one another, even as God and Christ forgave you. And then we have the conclusion, there's no negative in relation to verse 32, be imitators of God. That's the whole section, and one of the reasons that I wanted to go through that is when we get into this first section, be angry and do not sin, there are different translations of what be angry means and how it's translated, and I'll give you a couple of examples here in just a minute. So we have this statement, be angry and do not sin, do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. So that has to all be dealt with together and in context. And what we see as we, as we get into this, this first command is orgizo, and that is the word for anger or wrath. It's often used of God's wrath, and it is a present passive imperative. It's a present passive imperative. That means it. it it's as it's, it's we we receive the action of that. So it's like something just happens, and it's almost that. That's that visceral reaction from the, from the sin nature. But that is not a sin. But if we choose to act on it, then that's a sin. I had interesting situation yesterday i had to go back to heb on new, on new year's eve i did this on christmas eve you don't want to go to any store on christmas eve and new year's eve but there was something that I, that i needed to go back and get and i got there at 10 o'clock i'd been there at 7 30 in the morning already nobody was there but by 10 it, there was no parking places And the guy in front of me decided that that he was going to wait for a person who had just come out with a full basket of groceries. He was going to wait for them to put it on their car. I just put it in the park, and I sat there, and I watched people because you couldn't get around the guy who was waiting at all. And just to watch how people were reacting to one another in the parking lot we have a culture that it has no consideration for others, no no sense of good manners when they drive or when they're in a the parking lot, very impatient. Of course, I'm just speaking of myself at this point. So be angry and do not sin. And this is a verse that comes from a quote in the Old Testament. It's a quote from Psalm 4.4 which is translated by most translations as be angry and do not sin it just that first part but the hebrew word there really doesn't mean anger per se it has the idea of quaking trembling being excited it can mean fear it rarely if ever means anger so there's a lot of debate on that and because of some of these problems there are some different interpretations of what that means alan ross who wrote the three excellent three volume commentary on the Psalms, and it's taught it for about forty years in his career, said it essentially means to tremble in fear and dismay in response to in the context, in response to what the psalmist says uh in the previous uh in the previous verse in Psalm four 3, uh for, for, uh yes Psalm Psalm four three which says, But know that the Lord has set apart for himself him who is godly. The Lord will hear when I call him. And so he's addressing his enemies and says, now you don't be angry. Now you be angry. And he's saying, you be fearful and tremble. And it's in a response to what he said about God's goodness and faithfulness to believers in the previous verse. So Paul isn't really quoting and saying, this is what it's teaching. It's, it's, It's become sort of a proverb. And when it was translated into Greek, They use the word orgizo, the Greek of the septuagint. So Paul's just quoting quoting the the septuagint. And a lot of people have problems with how this is translated because it's an imperative. Be angry. God commanded you to be angry. But it's a passive. A passive voice means that the subject, which is you, does not perform the action. It receives the action. Okay? That's really important. But people don't look at all of these different aspects. And so you have some translations that say, if you are angry. But there's no conditional particle there. There's no if. Uh, Even if you are angry. Some translation says, if you have a cause to be angry or in your anger, or another one that some of you have been taught in the past, though you are angry, that's called a concessive cause because it's sort of conceding the, the uh, condition at the beginning. It can't mean any of those. And there's a lengthy, detailed, excruciatingly detailed analysis by Dan Wallace, who teaches Greek at Dallas Seminary, who wrote an article on this back in '89. And he goes through all the kinds of examples. And th- though there is a possibility that it could be an imperative of concession, which is extremely rare, almost as rare as hen's teeth. But some people teach that because it, make, it, it helps them to solve the problem. Because later, uh, God says, you know, you are to put off anger. Well, how can he say, be angry, and then four verses later say, say um, put away your anger? That seems like a contradiction. But you can't make a solution just because it fits better. That's the law of spandex. Remember the law of spandex? Just because you can wear spandex doesn't mean you should wear spandex. And this applies to biblical interpretation. Just because you can find a justification for translating something some way doesn't mean you should. You have to look at context and grammar and compare all kinds of things. And even though it's rare that it means this, doesn't mean just because it helps you solve the problem better that you jump to that conclusion. And a lot of people do that. So part of the problem is that in verse thirty-one, as I just pointed out, it says, "Let all bitterness, wrath, anger be put away from you." And Colossians three eight says, "But now you yourselves are to put off all of these anger and wrath." You go to First Timothy two eight, Paul says, "I desire therefore that the men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting." James 1.19 and 20 says we're to be slow to wrath, and the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Now, all these use basically the noun form from that verb. So what's the issue here? And the issue here is that we can be angry for a lot of different reasons, but not act on the anger. We're not going to harbor it, we're not going to chew it over in our minds, we're not going to go to bed at night and think about it and figure out how we're going to retaliate, and a lot of other things. So we are to recognize that that happens, we get angry, but we are to be creatures of thought, not emotion, as believers, not like postmodernists who are saying, no, 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 forget logic, forget reason, you just do what feels good, it's all about emotion don't, do not sin. And the word for sin indicates a conscious and deliberate false step as opposed to an inadvertent mistake. That's hamartano that's used there. That's the main word for sin. So from this, we learn that anger in and of itself is not necessarily sinful. It's what we do with the emotion. That that is what is significant. And so, um, we are not going to allow ourselves to be controlled by, by sin, uh, anger and we are not going to uh, act on it in terms of the sins of the tongue, such as lashing out, yelling, insulting, some sort of uh, uh, other actions, gossip, slander. All of these things are wrong. That can lead to chain sinning where all we're doing is harboring it and we have bitterness, resentment, and nurture our, our anger. And then the last phrase says, oh, nurturing your anger, a couple of verses address this. Ecclesiastes 7.9 says, do not hasten in your spirit to be angry, for anger rests in the bosom of fools. That's a great passage to memorize, anger rests in the bosom of fools. Amos 1.11 says that nurturing anger can destroy a nation. If you have a culture that's angry, it will destroy a nation. We have a culture that is angry. Amos 1.11 says, Thus said the Lord, for three transgressions of Edom and for four, I will not turn away its punishment. Because he pursued his brother with the sword and cast off all pity, his anger tore perpetually and kept his wrath forever. That's the reason they were being disciplined by god anger hinders prayer according to first timothy 2 8 that where li- men are to lift up holy hands this applies to women too without wrath and doubting seventh anger leads to further sins and self-induced misery proverbs 22 8 says he who sows iniquity will reap sorrow and the rod of his anger will fail you're just going to make yourself miserable by nurturing anger and uh, bitterness and resentment. Point eight, many people are deeply angry in our culture, and that anger destroys relationships with others. The, the rate of failures in marriage, uh, failures of children to uh, be able to grow up and have a healthy home life, all these stem from mental attitude, emotional sins. Proverbs 21.19 applies this to a woman, but it applies equally to men. Better to dwell in the wilderness than with a contentious and angry woman. Well, it's better to dwell in the desert than with anybody who's contentious and angry. Proverbs 27.4 says, Wrath is cruel and anger a torrent. But who is able to stand before jealousy and faults are remembered and held against a person for some time? See, that's self-destructive to do that. Many people do that. You can apply this to the whole reparations movement. I have a friend, black pastor, who told me one time, he says, I can't say certain things because I have so many people in my congregation who are still bitter about slavery. And I said, well, why don't you teach and tell them how evil it is to be bitter and to hold these kinds of resentments. said, I can't go there. You know, what kind of a pastor are you? Ninth, when we give in to anger, we quit walking by the Spirit, and we're controlled by the Holy Spirit. When we yield to that temptation, at that instant we're out of fellowship, and we're living like a spiritually dead person and the sin nature's in control. And that puts us in a position where the devil can take an opportunity. First Peter 5, 6 through 9 applies to this. Peter says, humble yourselves. What do you have to do to humble yourself? You're obedient to authority, obedient to the authority of God. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. That he may exalt you in due time. See, it's not about you, it's about God. But when we're pursuing a life that is all about us, then it's going to yield to a lot of problems with anger. How do we humble ourselves? By casting all of our care upon him because he cares for you. We walk in dependence upon God. And then Peter warns, be sober. That means be alert, be thinking objectively and clearly. It doesn't mean uh, that you don't have alcoholic beverages. The idea in the Greek word is that you think clearly and objectively about the issues of life. Be vigilant or watchful. Because your adversary, the devil, the devil is our adversary. He is our antagonist. And it's not just the devil personally, because so many people, the devil's after me. Well, the devil's not omnipresent. But I think that the devil here stands for his old army, just as we might speak of Putin attacking Ukraine. Well, Putin personally didn't attack Ukraine, but his army did. Okay, so this isn't just the devil. This is all of the demons under his command, uh, they are looking around for believers who are not walking by the spirit to take advantage of them. Your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. What are we supposed to do? Resist him. That means to stand fast, not attack him, not take control over the demon, um, not take not condemn him in the name of Jesus. Just stand fast. Stand your ground as a believer. We'll see this in spiritual warfare when we get there in chapter 10. Resist him steadfast in the faith. We, don't, we have three enemies in the Christian life, the world, the flesh, and the devil. We're to be aggressive against the world system, not invading our thinking. We're to be aggressive against our own sin nature, not to let it control us. But we're on the defense against Satan we let Jesus Christ take the offense. We stand fast in the faith because we know that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. So this first set of commands, we'll talk some more about it next time, has to do with dealing with anger, emotional sins, mental attitude sins, and not letting those control and dominate us and destroy our lives. So we'll come back next time and continue looking at the Code of Conduct for believers, Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to be reminded that because we trusted in Christ as Savior, we became new creatures in Christ. We have a new identity. There's a new lifestyle that is to characterize us because we're part of a new team. We're part of a new family. We're part of the body of Christ. Following these standards is not how we get saved. It is how we are to live because we are saved. And Father, we pray for anyone who's listening today, either here or online, and is still wondering how they can have eternal life. It is not based on what you do. It is based on what Jesus Christ did. And it is based on accepting that as a free gift from God the Father. And we do that by trusting in Christ, believing in Christ, believing what the Scripture says, that he died for our sins. And Father, we pray that you would make that clear to anyone listening who needs to hear the gospel. Father, we pray for the rest of us that we might be responsive to these commands, recognizing that this is what should characterize our lives as believers. And the only way to do that is to walk humbly with our God. And so, Father, we pray for the strength to do that, that we may grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen.